Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast that Clint Eastwood, Deep Blue Something, and Pippin the son of Charles the Great Stop. all don't want you to hear. It's monkeys and playbills, y'all! These are getting wilder and wilder as we go on. I'll bet you can't wait to find out how all those connect. <laughs> welcome to monkeys and playbills, y'all. This is the show where we talk about Broadway musicals that had runs of 100 performances or fewer on Broadway. And what the heck happened? And today, we're doing a very special episode. Um, we'll tell you what the episode is in a second, but first I, we want to introduce a very special guest. We're remote recording today for the first time in a long time, but it's for a good reason. Because we're zooming in with someone from Jolly Old England, y'all. Oh no. Jolly oh, Old no. England, it's just me. <laughs> It's Nelson Betancourt, dear friend of the podcast. <laughs> dear friend of the podcast, dear, dear friend to both Jill and I, um, who for the past couple years has moved from Winnipeg to London, England to live with his partner and is just crushing it over there, crushes it here whenever he's back. Nelson, how's it going? Oh, I'm so good. I'm so happy to be on with you guys. I missed you so much. Oh, we're missing you. Nelson and I had worked together many times because we went to high school together. We, we've known each other since we were like 14. That's my favorite thing <laughs> ever. <laughs> Jeez, where do we, where do we start? Well, let's talk about what we're doing for this episode. Yes. Oh my gosh, I'm so thrilled to have Nelson on board for this revive or die. Nelson's been a big help to this podcast in the past because Nelson is a virtual encyclopedia. I wouldn't go that far. Like that's, <laughs> that's, but thank you. Muchas gracias, but... <laughs> More specifically, Nelson likes to collect old and obscure scores and cast recordings and all sorts of Broadway obscuria. I do, but even these shows were, like, hard to find. <laughs> I love that for us, though. We're going to tackle three musicals today, three especially obscure Broadway musicals that didn't run over 100 performances. Um, we're going to tackle three of them because these musicals are so obscure and so bizarrely documented, it's difficult to find a full context. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to find enough information to do a full hour-long episode. So instead, we're going to talk about these shows, talk about the little information we could find, and we're going to speculate wildly about the rest of it. I can't wait. First up, let's talk about 1966's Breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> So the way this is going to work, I've done research on the music, what it sounds like, and kind of what the show looked like. I have done some research on the kind of production history, synopsis, and uh, creative teams. And I looked at the Tony Awards and which musicals did well and which musicals didn't. And we can pretty much assume that none of these musicals did very well. They did not crush at the Tonys. So here we are. Let's start with Breakfast at Tiffany's. All right. Let me give you the the go here on Yeah, please the do. And then we can maybe jump into what you think the plot is, Paul. Absolutely. I love it. Breakfast at Tiffany's. Previews began at the Majestic Theater on December 12th, 1966. It opened never- Officially. Really? <laughs> it didn't see anything. <laughs> Closed on December 14th, 1966, after four previews. And zero public performances. I have been dying to talk about this musical ever since we 
started this podcast for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And one of them is exactly this, the fact that it never technically reached sort of public performance. Based on a book, right? Mm-hmm, a novella. By Truman Capote. It was a really cool kind of pop author in the um, 1950s, 1960s. I've only ever read Cold Blood. Is that that's one, right? In Cold Blood, yeah. Which I really like. Same. And I've seen the Philip Seymour Hoffman movie. Mm-hmm. Is there any? Are there any other adaptations of Breakfast at Tiffany's that I that I'm forgetting? Like popular ones. The song. And I said, right? "What about Breakfast at Tiffany's?" Damn, Jill, you you ruined my bit. I wanted someone to say, "What about the movie?" Hold on, go. Let's go. Let's go again. Let's go okay, again. Okay, let's go okay, again. Okay, sorry. <laughs> are there any other adaptations of Breakfast at Tiffany's that I'm forgetting? Nelson. Um, I think you're forgetting about the movie. <laughs> oh, I think I remember that film. If I recall, I think we both kind of liked it. I hate this. <laughs> I hate this. I hate it. Because my, my other connection to Breakfast at Tiffany's is there's a song by Deep Blue Something that was released in the mid-90s that I love so much. I, I do have a question about this musical that maybe you guys can answer. So is this musical based on the movie or is it based on the novella? And this is where it gets tricky. So this is something I'd like to address now before we really get into this. Totally. So the... Book was a novella, not a fully fleshed out book novel. And Truman Capote did not like the movie. Fair enough. Shade. (laughs) (laughs) The way that they had like changed, basically the essence of Holly Golightly, they changed her as a human character in the movie um, to imply that she was a sex worker. Right. And he didn't like that. So already the movie is not necessarily true to the novella. And so then I go, oh, well, is Breakfast at Tiffany's the musical an adaptation of the movie or is it an adaptation of the novella? And my gut tells me it's probably the movie. Sure, that would make sense. I think that was the big thing, especially in the early 1960s, like with Audrey. Miss Audrey was in it. Miss Hepburn. (laughs) Uh, I'm assuming because of the popularity of that, that they thought bringing it to stage would automatically sell tickets gotta be it seems like it was a big old home run so who um who wrote this jill okay so this is where it's really fun it's really interesting (laughs) yeah it's already fun right now yeah when you're asking me about this because abe burrows who if i'm not mistaken wrote the book for guys and dolls absolutely correct huge collaborator with uh frank lesser both guys and dolls and how to succeed great yeah so abe burrows was uh initially the book writer on this project, but I guess at some point during out-of-town tryouts, they were like, oh, or or was it previews? At some point, they were like, no, 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 it's got to be Edward Albee. (laughs) Yeah, this book's not cutting it from powerhouse book writer Abe Burroughs, who's um, had already written the books for two highly successful musicals at this point. Mm -hmm. Instead, let's get famed playwright Edward Albee, who's not a bad fit. All told. Yeah, like, I guess not. I think it's just, again, like, I look at the format for a Broadway musical versus, like, a play. And it's not always, like, transferable in that sense, in terms of style. Because when I think of Edward Albee, I think of, like, quippy, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Mm -hmm. 
And that seems like the vibe for that would work for Breakfast at Tiffany's as well, but maybe not for a musical. I know it doesn't always work with a playwright taking over a musical because, you know, they are two very different genres. Yeah, related but different mediums almost, yeah. But but I look at uh, Fun Home, which was, of course, Janine Tesori working with Lisa Kron, and Lisa Kron had never Incredible worked show. on a musical before. Mm-hmm. And it was smash hit, out of the park, beautiful, beautiful Loved production. It. Very good. Took a Tony. Took a bunch of Tonys. But this also is 1960s, and maybe the genres just could not come together just yet yeah it it also could have been like a fundamental stylistic issue like in the sense that from the beginning no one actually knew what it was supposed to be they were just trying to make something happen but no one could agree on yeah what they were adapting (laughs) i don't know (laughs) what was the vision yeah what's the vision why are we doing this so the music had kind of a, at least like a half powerhouse attached to it. Yeah. Uh, Bob Merrill did the lyrics for Funny Girl, which is kind of a big old deal. So he wrote the lyrics for freaking like People and Don't Ran On My Parade. And so he's done very well for himself. I know Sugar randomly because I oh, sang yes. a song from that sure. um, in, when I was going to school. And then he did Carnival. Carnival. Yes, that's, that's the other right. one. Yep. So like someone who's got some stuff going on, not a nobody, someone who's... um. Who knows what they're doing? So what the heck happened? (laughs) Why was it so bad that it couldn't even make it out of previews? I mean, I was waiting to hear Moon River. I really wanted to hear Moon River. It just never came. (laughs) And I was like, okay, I'm out. I can't do this. Does it not happen? No, it's not. Because Bob Merrill did not write Moon River. No, well, I say what about breakfast. That's what I was waiting for, you know? (laughs) You're a little little early for it. I was like, oh, it's going to be the, like, it's going to be the finale of the show. Said, I think I remember that film. <laughs> Nothing. Not even one, not even a reference. I'm so sorry for you. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to ask because I didn't listen to any music. Yes. Okay. I didn't listen to a single thing. What was your impression, Paul and Nelson? So Nelson, did you listen to the music obviously or the album? As much as it exists. I mean, yeah, I listen to... Uh, it super exists is the cool thing. Yeah. In 2014, they got together and made a um, a real nice cast recording, like a professional level cast recording. So in 2013, there was a revival on Broadway or an off-Broadway production. Amelia Clark and this really charming guy. Is this the same? No, that's a <gasps> another adaptation of Breakfast at Tiffany's. That's not okay, the, that's that's not the 1960s ask. musical. I got caught on this as well because in doing research, this all gets caught up, right? Let me, give you a, let me give you a rundown of Breakfast at Tiffany's on Broadway as I understand it. Based on listening to the 2014 recording? Or at least just how it's been documented and then I'll get to the 2014 recording. Because in the 1960s, yeah. it doesn't even open, but someone does take a live recording from a performance of it. Mm-hmm. That exists somewhere. I wasn't able to find it. If uh, anyone from the, any fan of the podcast, any friend of the podcast finds it and sends it to us, that would be really cool. We'll send you a mug. We've got friend of the podcast mugs now that we can send you. (laughs) It'll be wonderful. (laughs) And then it lives in obscurity for a while as kind of one of these famous Broadway flops, kind of that just end up in the canon until the story gets a new adaptation in 2013. Amelia Clark's in it. And around that same time, 
a studio recording of the original music is produced. Um, Faith Prince is in the lead. There's a whole oh, bunch of um, okay. whole bunch of people in it, and it sounds great. It sounds like it was made in 2014, so crystal clear uh, modern recording technology. So that's what I was able to listen to samples of to get an idea of this show. Great. In addition, I was able to find a one clip from the original audience recording of Mary Tyler Moore singing um, the an actual song called "Breakfast at Tiffany's." Yeah. The music's nice. It's like super 1950s, 1960s, um, you know, that kind of end of Golden Age, just post-Golden Age sound. Like, think Funny Girl. It's that very much that vibe, and it's a nice vibe. Mm-hmm. I I didn't hate it either. No, I actually, right? I thought I was going to hate it, and yeah. I didn't hate it either. This is good news. It is. And I thought the, or at least the recording that I found on the YouTubes, um, yep. <laughs> sounded like decent. I, I really, I wanted to hate it because, you know, it had four previews. So I'm like, something went wrong. <laughs> yeah, something went wrong. I don't think the music was went wrong. I wanted to ask. Yes. So, Paul, you've never seen the movie. Correct. But you've listened to now this cast recording. In preparation for this episode, I listened to the 30 second preview clips of all the songs on Amazon Music. Brilliant. Nelson, have you seen the movie? I have not seen the movie. I've seen clips. This is amazing. This is literally amazing to me because I am going to now have the two of you together tell me what you think the story is based on listening to this music and like the little bits that you know about it. So here's what I know about Breakfast at Tiffany's. I know that Holly Golightly is the main character Mm -hmm. um, played by Audrey Hepburn in the movie. Correct. I know that the movie also features... Mickey Rooney and just an outstandingly racist performance. Oh, I, I saw those bits and I was like, <gasps> oh, just an oh, absurdly racist. Like, bury it deep, 10 feet under the ground, never talk about it again. Mm-hmm. So, for our purposes, I'm not going to touch that. And that's all I know for sure. The other thing is, I think that the Tiffany's referred to is like Tiffany's jewelry store in New York. Mm-hmm. Good, very good. Okay, so that's it. That's what I'm going in with. So, with that said, I've got a song list. Right here. I just have one quick note before we start. Mm. Yes. I feel like the fact that there is a song in this musical called Breakfast at Tiffany's that Holly Golightly probably sings outside Tiffany's is already a sign to me that they got this whole thing wrong. So I'll just say it now. I'm just going to say it now. Okay. So there are a lot of songs in this cast recording. So I'm going to try to move very quickly through what I understand the plot to be after zero research. Great. And Nelson, if I forget anything um, based on our incredible amounts of research that we've done, that we've both done, (laughs) please feel free to weigh in at any point with true facts that you know for sure. Okay. So we start. There's an overture. It sounds fantastic. And then we have the opening number, I've Got a Penny. This is sang by Holly Golightly herself, who's poor. She doesn't have much money, but she's got a penny. She's got a scrappy attitude. And she's looking for the wittiest fellow in Pittsburgh which is the next number in the show. She wants someone who's so funny, they are the funniest person in all of the renowned funny city of Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's a very funny city. Everyone knows this. And she's looking for the funniest guy in all of Pittsburgh. It's more, that's more of a, um, a metaphor than a real thing because she's in New York. <laughs> but she's, um, she's lonely. She's looking for a funny guy. Um, this is actually a reference to um, Bob Merrill's previous work, Funny Girl. Stop. Um, oh but that's, that's more of an Easter egg for the true fans. <laughs> <laughs> this is so, so here she is, one penny, looking for a man, but she's hungry. She's so hungry. She doesn't have much, uh, much money. She's in New York and she's starving Marvin. She's thirsty. She's thirsty. <laughs> she needs, she's got, yes. She needs someone to quench her thirst. <laughs> 
but she also needs maybe some eggs Benedict. So she finds herself in front of Tiffany's jewelry store. Which now serves breakfast. Well, well this is it. They're, they're having a promotion where you get an eggs Benedict and you look for like diamond bracelets. And so oh she sings God. a song about how much she would like breakfast at Tiffany's. This goes on for a while because there's many, many songs in Act 1. We learn a lot about the various people in Holly Golightly's life. All the various men that she meets but decides they're not funny enough. There's a song about oh, halfway yeah. through Act 1 called Calling All Men. Where she's just trying to trying to meet people, trying to meet funny men who um, would be rated as the, the funniest in all of Pittsburgh. We have the Lament for Ten Men. That's the one that I was looking at. Lament for Ten Men. Like, this girl, she goes through men quickly. Well, if I recall yes. correctly, that's a, it's a montage scene where we see her on okay. ten different oh, dates. Yeah. Hello, 12. Hello, Hello 13. <laughs> Hello, la. <laughs> well, it's actually, it's actually, it's an Easter egg for the true fans to a musical that would be written ten years later um, called yes. The Chorus Line. <laughs> good, good. This where is where they drew their inspiration. <laughs> she goes on a date with ten different men, and all of them are not very funny. It's like the whole joke is, she's like, so, tell me a joke. And the guy's like, why did the chicken cross the road? And she goes, <laughs> And then they fall through a trap door. And she door falls, they the fall floor. through a trap door. Exactly. <laughs> like Sweeney. Yeah. Very Sweeney-esque. Um, like the chair actually yeah. goes backwards. They slide. And of course, all of these dates take place at Tiffany's uh, during the breakfast buffet. So they're all munching eggs Benedict. <laughs> yeah, with this breakfast promotion. <laughs> <laughs> so this continues on. There's all sorts of, um, all sorts of interesting and exciting songs where we learn a lot more about Holly Golightly, her search for love. Her desire to buy diamond bracelets from Tiffany's, but she doesn't have any money. She's just got a penny and a desire for a witty man. Finally, Daddy Comes Home. This is a song, When Daddy Comes Home. <laughs> this is a term that's, this is a term, that, term that's had a resurgence in um, recent years to um, describe a older, an older person who is very sexy. In kind of like a yeah, fatherly way. Hot. I'm using that correctly. Like a So that's what they're referring to here as well. This is where that started. Because she meets... What's his name? What's his name again, Nelson? Jeff? She meets Jeff! Oh! She meets Jeff. And Jeff is super daddy. And he's funny. He's so daddy, he is zaddy. That's he's how daddy is. He's zaddy, absolutely. Yeah. That's not a term that existed at that point. But <laughs> it's um, it's a term that if you're applying today's lens, if you're looking through Breakfast Hippies yeah. in today's lens, he is super yeah. zaddy. If we were going to do a revival, this song would be called When Zaddy Comes Home. <laughs> <laughs> so we meet Jeff. Jeff is funny. Jeff is hot. Jeff's got a big beard. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they begin a flirtation throughout the rest of Act One. A flirtation that goes through songs such as You've Never Kissed Her. Songs like Who Needs Her when he's frustrated with Holly Golightly's insistence that they always meet at Tiffany's. And finally ends Act One with the sex dance. Literally, I was waiting for you to get to this. The sex dance. The sex dance is the final number in Act One, y'all. Wow, okay. (laughs) Wow. It kind of reminds me of the dance of the seven veils from that opera that I can't remember. From uh, Salome. Yeah, totally. Salome, yeah. Just like, (laughs) it's the dance of the seven veils, but no, it's actually just sex dance. Well, so it's the dance of the seven veils, but it's Jeff who's doing the dance. It's a dream ballet. Exactly, exactly, precisely. It's, yeah. Yeah. We love a dream ballet. So that's the end of one. Top of act two. We've got an entre act and we start with nothing is new in New York. 
Nelson, what's happening here? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> yeah, Nelson, help us. It's not, it's not. It's not really. It's not really a book song. It's more of a just a set no. stage. <laughs> it's just someone actually just walks onto stage and says, "There's nothing new in New York." Back, back to the scene. And so finally, we find our way to "Good Girls Go to Heaven." The this song is a very important song in the show because it's um, Holly Golightly is feeling conflicted. This is the 1950s. It's a um, a pretty significant thing to um, to have sex with someone before you're married at this time. Mm-hmm. And she's mm-hmm. feeling a little she's feeling a little weird. She's kind of trying to wrap her head around kind of the guilt of the 1950s having a healthy sexual relationship with her boyfriend Jeff. So she sings the song Good Girls Go to Heaven, which is like, well that am I still it's it's of the time is the point. Mm-hmm. It's okay though because this song is actually very this show is actually very sex positive and is just exploring different takes on this. This is um from what I understand. <laughs> so because Jeff is actually, not only is he funny, but he's an eligible bachelor. Holly Golightly kind of says, you know what? You got to settle down with me or ciao. So there's um, a song called Ciao Compare. Um, <laughs> compare. Compare. I'm not sure. It's compare. It's actually compare. Ciao compare. Um, <laughs> which loosely translated means see you zaddy. See you later zaddy. <laughs> and thus... After this, Jeff sings The Bachelor, where he laments the fact that he'll always be a bachelor. He's too sexy and too much of a ladies' man to ever settle down with one person. But wait, could he settle down with Holly Golightly? Could he? Well, we find out after three or four more songs, we finally find ourselves at the end of the show. There's all sorts of room, romantic comedy hijinks mm-hmm. that, uh, that take place. Probably a tap number, I mean. There's a tap number where <laughs> Jeff tries to apologize to Holly Golightly. <laughs> Two. In two different tap numbers. <laughs> it's misunderstood. Um, he's dancing with um, with another woman trying to impress Holly Golightly, but she misunderstands in classic rom-com fashion. She's like, yeah, you're with another woman. What's going on? He's like, oh, no, you misunderstood. Give me a chance to explain. And she's like, absolutely not. I don't need a chance to explain. This would become the archetype for many rom-coms in the future. This all stems from this musical. <laughs> Until finally we find ourselves... At the end of the show, where Jeff sings about how he's always making the same mistakes. I've done this all the time. I make the mistake. I fall in love with a, um, with a wonderful woman, but I make the same mistakes over and over again. Give me another chance. And here we are at the end of the show, where Holly Golightly sings a reprise of Breakfast at Tiffany's, where they sit down for an Eggs Benedict together to give it another try. <laughs> yeah, that, the first one was bad, but the second one, that exactly, was the one exactly. where they nailed it. Yeah, exactly. That was the good eggs, Betty. (laughs) (laughs) Did I miss anything, Nelson? Anything important to the well-known plot of Breakfast at Tiffany's? I think that's exactly how it went. I was like, I thought you were going to be way more sillier with it because I was going to be like, it's actually about a girl named Tiffany. And (laughs) she's like the cook at this diner. And, and, and she just served breakfast all day. And it's like, we go there, we go to, we go get breakfast at Tiffany's. And she's exhausted. She's exhausted. It's about From her refilling exhaust. your coffee. <laughs> so Jill, did we misunderstand anything about this plot? Well, the first thing you misunderstood was the uh, guy's name. Right. <laughs> it's Fred. It's not Jeff. <laughs> it's not Jeff. <laughs> Our bad. That's, that's, that's on us. That's fair enough. Small misunderstanding. So I realized as... You were doing your synopsis. I was reading over the one I found on Playbill.com. And I realized that the one on Playbill.com is actually related to the revival, which I, my understanding is, is probably closer to the 
original novella than it is to the movie. So I'm going to read you that. Great. And then I'm going to tell you all the ways in which it's not the same as the movie. Great. And also then probably not the same as the original musical. Okay. Makes total sense. So this synopsis from Playbill.com says, Truman Capote's Breakfast at Tiffany's is set in New York City in 1943. Fred, a young writer from Louisiana, meets Holly Golightly, a charming, vivacious, and utterly elusive good-time girl. Everyone falls in love with Holly, including Fred, but Fred is poor, and Holly's other suitors include a playboy millionaire and the future president of Brazil. As war rages on in Europe, Holly begins to fall in love with Fred, just as her past catches up with her. So, like, tomato-tomato to what we said. (laughs) Same. So, <laughs> yeah. um, same. war was not part of the 1960, I think 62 movie or referenced at all. And I think it's because they had set the film in that time period. Like it's got a 60s vibe to me. Yeah, totally. Some of the things that are correct are that Holly Golightly is a charming and vivacious good time girl. Yeah. That's a thing that we, that is very clear in the movie. Right. But I don't know how true that is necessarily to the book i think we may have a different feeling about what that means yeah and this is what i was trying to get at with my very very poor attempt at a joke in act two there where i do know that yeah that um breakfast at tiffany's does deal with like holly golightly's ownership of her sexuality and her romantic life and yeah yeah and and also in a really indirect way like they really never truly address it which is i think a little of that time though too sure. right it's like, oh, we'll just, we'll allude to it, but we won't talk about it. So when you hear that synopsis, Nelson and Jill, my dear friends, mm-hmm. do you think, man, that's got to be a musical with like 40 songs in it? I mean, does any musical <laughs> right? really like, need 40 songs in it? That's that's exactly <laughs> the question. I mean, we need to when ask I found ourselves. it was 40 songs and it was two acts, I was like, that, that, like, if we split it down the middle, 20 songs each half. This is a three-act musical that it really should be, first of all, but no musical should be three acts. So, well, I, I, I'm okay, I misspoke. Mm-mm. Not any, mu- like, musicals can be three acts. Will I sit through them all? I don't know. Last podcast, we tackled Anyone Can Whistle, which is originally in three acts and definitely should not be. So I'm right there with you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the other thing we should talk about is like the direction and who was on this creative yes. team, because I think it will also, I, it's not going to answer anything, but I think it's helpful. A little to more know. context. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so it was directed by Joseph Anthony, who directed The Most Happy Fella and 110 in the Shade. Okay, both uh, real real nice shows. The music director was Stanley Lebowski, who also did the vocal arrangements on this. Absolutely. And was the MD for the OG Pippin in Chicago. I believe his, uh, his nickname is Big, Stanley Big Lebowski. Oh, is he ever? Um, Daft, be sure to put like a big old laugh track there. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. don't. No, do, uh, okay, do, well, do that. Pew, pew, yeah, pew, pew. Daft's shaking his head and I <laughs> Yes. <laughs> well, I'll, take, I'll take that again. Daft, be sure to leave this all in. I believe his name is Stanley Big Lebowski. (laughs) And that's where the air horns will go. Do you understand? Is that okay? Fantastic. Thank you, Producer Daff. Sorry to to interrupt, Jill. That was um, really important. (laughs) You were sane. Uh, And then the musical (laughs) staging was by Michael Kidd. Oh. Guys and Dolls, Lil Abner, the 1980 Music Man revival. Like... A busy and pretty iconic choreographer. They've got some strong people working on this. Yeah. And I think that was the main source of confusion on a lot of like the blogs that I was reading about this is that they're like, even if this team couldn't collectively make it work, then like what was happening? 
And that's why I think it was a style thing. Seems like a style thing, or I would argue maybe even a structure challenge mm-hmm. if they ended up bringing in a whole new book writer right, to restructure and rewrite. You know what I mean? I mean, to try and fix what was wrong. Exactly. That's a Hail Mary, and I would say probably one that doesn't usually work. Like a too late in the game. Like that should be at the in the workshop process or something. But this is really, this is before that process was really firmly established, right? Because the modern workshop process was established with Chorus Line in the 1970s. I think you're right. Someone write me if I'm wrong, but I believe that's correct. So I would hazard a guess to say that that's maybe what killed Breakfast at Tiffany's, is mm-hmm. it was really long and really boring, and <laughs> the structure was all over the place. Yeah. Nelson, what do you think? Okay, so I, I know it wasn't my job to like do any of the reading, but I just wanted to know. No, this is I, good. I read somewhere that the producer, and tell me if I make it this up, had pulled out because the show was so boring that he was like, y'all, this needs this this is done. I actually have the quote. Yes. Please read the quote. It was so juicy. It was, it was yes. Good. So uh-huh. uh, it was supposed to open on Boxing Day in 1966, but producer David Merrick closed the show in previews, quote, rather than subject the drama critics and the public to an excruciatingly boring evening. <laughs> oh, the shade. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. So this there is we go. too boring. boring. I can't do this to anyone. <laughs> it would I get be irresponsible it. to make people watch this. <laughs> I get that maybe in the 60s they were worried about a woman leading a show and it okay. centering around a woman. <laughs> you know? Like, think about it. But at this point, we've already, like, Rogers and Hammerstein's already broken that ground, you know? They've broken the ground, but, but no. women. No. This they... is not romantic. Sure. Yeah, yeah. This is not, she's not a damsel in distress at any point. Whereas even like, um, even Nellie, for all her gumption and go get him, is still kind of a damsel in distress at the end of the day. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it depends how you play her, but yes. Depends if you're, <laughs> no, if you're Jillian Rowlands, but- <laughs> if you play her bad. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but it's true. And I feel like, and this is me obviously speculating wildly because I yeah. can't presume to know what the sort of energy and feelings surrounding this was, but this is a sexual woman, okay, who is in charge of her own finances and in control of her own life. And I wonder if not only were maybe audiences and producers not ready for it, but maybe just like the way that it was written just wasn't accurate. I don't know. Bear in mind, this is also before like the first wave. Hold on, pause, 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 sorry. Who is that? Hi. Is that producer Daphne on the board? Look at this. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so this was like pre-second wave feminist movement. So Mm -hmm. bear in mind, married women could not have their own bank accounts yet. That's where we were at as a a society in America. So I think Jillian is absolutely right that a woman being in control of not only her own sexuality, but also her own finances and not like, needing a man in any sense would have been kind of a tough pill to swallow for mainstream Mm -hmm. audiences. But it is revealed, and it says here in this synopsis, her past catches up with her. She is married. Right. Which is something, too, that was probably shocking. And I don't know if they included it in the 66 production, but they certainly addressed it in the the revival play thing that they did. Yes, that's very interesting. Have you read Breakfast at Tiffany's, Jill? I've not read the novella, but I've seen the movie and I read a book about the making of the movie, which sure. is why I 
knew that Truman Capote didn't like it so much. I kind of think I might go read it now. <laughs> I would love to to hear right? your experience as you read it. And I probably should too if I'm making yeah. all these like guesses and I'd like to <laughs> maybe know what I'm talking about. So Breakfast at Tiffany's didn't even open. David Merrick couldn't even find it in himself to open it. Other musicals did open though. They did. So Nelson, what were the Tonys like that year? The Tonys that year. <laughs> Uh, well, actually, the following year, in 1967. Yes. Uh, it was the 21st Annual Tony Awards, and they were on wow. March 26, 1967. They were held Can we the guess sh- who they were hosted by? Oh, yes, please. Well, I'll tell you the location. So it was at the Schubert yes. Theater. So who do you think it was hosted by? Angela Lansbury. No. <laughs> no, ma'am. No. <laughs> um, 67 was 67. hosted by Ethel Merman. No. Okay, I'll give you, can I give you a hint? Yes. Yes. Okay, it was a famous Mary. Mary Martin. Mary Martin. Yeah. I love Mary Martin. Totally. Okay, so that was one of them. And then there was another one who I don't think you'll ever get. Okay. Which is who? It is uh, Robert Preston. Oh, yes. I was actually going to guess Robert Preston because he hosted the 18th annual, which we talked about last time. He's another like recurring host. This is 19 for the 1966 Tony year. What what were the big categories? What won? The okay, I'm gonna make you guys guess again. So yes, great. best musical and best original score was won by the same musical. Great. There was no best book that year mm-hmm. because best book didn't start to become a uh, staple in the um, Tonys until 1971. That's when it started. It was every year oh. from 1971, but okay. before that, it would just come in and out. So there's no best book that year, but the same musical won. Best musical and best original score. Which one do you think it was? Not a hot clue. Can you give any hints about the composers or the content of the piece? Okay. Uh, my first hint is... Oh, I hope this doesn't give it away. Okay, it is a candor and ebb. Oh, in 67? That wasn't cabaret. That would be cabaret, wouldn't it? It was cabaret. Yeah. Oh, wow. I forget how long ago yeah. that really was because that's wow. the og that's the og yeah. cabaret. it's so interesting where like you listen to breakfast at tiffany's and it seems like almost kind of quaint like i was saying like a kind of a, <laughs> and we're almost at the end of that era and cabaret's breaking new ground at this point you know what i mean wow oh yeah so cabaret great fantastic easily one of the best musicals just full stop oh by the way breakfast at tiffany's got zero tony noms just so we can get that out of the way. It, yeah. I don't even think it, would, it wouldn't be eligible because it never opened. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it never stood a chance. Yeah. But let's be honest. It never stood a yeah. chance. <laughs> okay. The other musicals for best musical were, so Cabaret won. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The other ones were I Do, I Do. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. The Apple Tree. Yeah. Yeah. And Walking Happy. You know, that big hit. That big, everyone's favorite walk. Where's the Walking Happy revival we've all been waiting for? Yeah. Wow. Well, that's really cool. Were there any folks that were nominated for performance-related things that we would be excited to celebrate on this podcast? Did Joel Grey take Best Actor for um, Cabaret? No. That was Robert Preston for I Do, I Do. Really? Interesting. He hosted and won. And took Best Actor. Yeah. Yeah, you hate to see it. (laughs) Well, that's so fascinating. Yeah. So that's Breakfast at Tiffany's. Wow. So I was just looking through the original opening night cast, and there was 40 cast members. One cast member per song. Oh, that's good. That's actually 
actually they really all good. Got everyone got solos. a solo. <laughs> yeah, everyone got a solo. It's so generous. It was like, it's like musical theater school all over again. <laughs> everyone got a solo. Perfect to do in a musical theater school. <laughs> Breakfast at Tiffany's and everyone takes one song. Oh my god! Oh, oh no. god! Okay, sorry. Oh, that was just the no. one thing I like. That's way too many that, cast members. Like, yeah. yeah, that's this era though. They would employ like two hundred people. Well, they only had to pay him like a hundred dollars uh, a week. Yeah, you know, <laughs> the union was nothing at that point. <laughs> yeah. Whereas now these people get paid properly, but we're lucky if you can get like. 20 work. people on the cast. Right. Yeah. Oh, you're lucky to work. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So let's talk about Hurry Harry. Hurry Harry. Hurry. Hurry, hurry hard. Hurry hard, Harry. Hurry hard, Harry. <laughs> hurry up, Harry. As one reviewer said, hurry, hurry. I read that one too. I know. So shady. <laughs> Previews began at the Ritz Theater on October 5th, 1972. It opened on October 12th, 1972, and it closed on October 13th, 1972, after nine previews and two performances. Wow. You hate to see it. You hate to see it. Oh, I'd like to begin by telling a short story that I promised I would tell. Um, Last night, I was playing at a fundraiser. Um, Jill and I both uh, had a fundraiser that we worked on, and we were in the green room, and I was doing my research for this. And dear, dear friend of the podcast, Wes Rambo, looked over my shoulder and said, Oh, wow, are you guys doing a Monkeys and Playbills on a Dirty Harry musical? (laughs) That's why you said Clint Eastwood. And that's why I said Clint Eastwood. I was was trying to figure out why. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely we are. We're doing a series of cowboy musicals, starting with Dirty Harry the Musical. And I thought that was a very funny joke, so thank you, Wes Rambo, for making that funny joke. That is funny. Okay, so, whew, where do we even begin? 1972, what was happening? Bell bottoms? Disco? Like, what's going on? Like, Vietnam? Mm-hmm. Is that Vietnam yet? That's mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. right around in the pocket. Yep. So like, is, it, is that Richard Nixon? Richard Richard Nixon is this. This is all right around this time. This yeah, is all setting right. the um setting the stage for like a really significant cultural revolution. Mm-hmm. And a little old musical called Hurry Harry makes a splash. It's more of a flop. Bloop. <laughs> more of a. <laughs> so what is it about? Like, what do you think? Okay, what did you find on the on the music? So I can find virtually nothing about this show. I have no idea what this show sounds like. I can tell you that the poster is a man on a cloud, and also there's a production photo of a woman with an umbrella. So it rained. Oh. We have to assume. And I have a song list. So based on that, I've been able to piece together a pretty clear picture of um, what it's about, obviously. I can't wait to hear what you... Should we dive right in? I think we we should do this first, and then I will tell you what it's actually about. Terrific. So hurry, Harry about a man on a cloud and a woman with an umbrella. Starts with an overture, like most things do. And then Harry, our main character Harry, sings a song called I'm Gonna, in which he expresses all the things he's gonna do. I'm gonna fly a kite. I'm gonna hit the winning um, home run in a baseball game. I'm gonna fly to the clouds. Oh, sure. This is Harry's number one goal, is he's gonna build a flying machine. He's gonna fly to the clouds. So then we get into the we get into the meat of the story, and we hear the song "When a Man Cries." This isn't sung by Harry. This is sung by our supporting cast, which includes Nick, Mama, Helena, Town Drunk. This is our supporting cast of characters, where they sing about 
how beautiful it is when a man cries, when a man is in touch with his emotions Mm -hmm. and feels vulnerable enough and safe enough to cry. It's really wonderful, and it ends with all of them crying together. Then we meet Muffy. We meet our, um, our, our woman lead, Muffy, who sings A Trip Through My Mind. Muffy is a, um, she's a historian. She's a, a theologian and she <laughs> sings A Trip Through My Mind. She's in her, um, in her library doing research and she sings this song about how smart she is but how much trouble she has interacting with people and she's backed up by the Dead Sea Scrolls, which she's working on translating. <laughs> I swear to God, that's what it says here. A Trip Through My Mind sung by Muffy and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Hmm. This has serious Happy as Larry vibes. Yeah, well, it's very, very, very similar. It's actually um, inspired. Yeah. Yeah. We go back and forth for a bit. Um, Harry's in his workshop working on his flying machine. Muffy's in her library working on translating translating the Dead Sea Scrolls. At one point, we have a song called Africa Speaks that we're just not going to, we're not going to touch. We're going to pretend that doesn't exist for our purposes right now. Great. Because we find ourselves to the end of Act 1 somewhere in the past where Harry has finally finished his flying machine and he takes off into the sky. He flies into the future. And as he's doing that, he sings a song about how he's wanted to do this since childhood, since somewhere in the past when he first had this dream. Right. It's beautiful. I cried. I think everyone cried. Yeah, because when a man cries. When a man cries, it's beautiful. That reprise is coming. <laughs> as, we're, it'll go, as, as we end act one. Muffy sees him take off and thinks, who is that? Oh. End of act one, refill your drink. We're back. Here the entre act. And here we have at the top of act two, the title song, Hurry Harry. Now it's sung by Star and the chorus boys. And this is because Harry flies so high, like he runs into a star. Mm, yeah. He flies into space, for lack of a better term, and he meets stars. And the stars go, Harry, you've got to hurry. Hurry back to Earth. You can't breathe in space. At this point... Um, Harry has, he's disrupted the, the entire ecosystem by flying into, flying through the clouds into space. And, um, it causes like rainstorms, torrential downpours all over the world. This is very distressing to, um, to Muffy. She's wandering around with her umbrella. She's trying to save all these old documents, um, that are just going to be ruined by the torrential downpour. And she sings a song called Goodbye, where she's saying goodbye to all these things (laughs) in the past. She's dedicated her whole life to um to the documents to the documents and now she's saying goodbye <laughs> the deed to my house <laughs> goodbye oh my god <laughs> uh, my birth certificate <laughs> just thinking documents <laughs> what, what what documents do you keep outside that would get rained on well you guys are you guys are exactly right all of those um Murphy had been living in a in a tent <laughs> It's revealed. <laughs> so absolutely all her, her life is washed away. <laughs> Harry finally, Harry lands. He lands back on Earth after his exploration. And he meets with um, Dr. Krauss. Dr. Krauss is his psychologist. And Harry says, I don't know. I flew all the way to space. I completed. This is what I wanted to do in my life. But I still, I don't, I don't feel complete. And Dr. Krauss sings a song called You Won't Be Happy. Dr. Krauss explains to him, life isn't about... Um, just trying to accomplish these goals you've wanted since you were a kid. Um, you won't be happy if you do that. Life is about about finding someone to spend life with. Um, you should probably go try to find someone. Um, this is the 1970s, so that's still that's the plot of a lot of musicals mm-hmm. is um, finding um, finding love, true love. Finally, we're almost at the end. Harry finds his way 
finds his way to church and Muffy finds her way to church as well. Muffy's trying to find out who she is. She's lost a, lost her tent. She's lost her house. She's lost her certificate. She has no idea who she is anymore. <laughs> they both find their way to church where Harry and the congregation sing a song called He Is My Bag. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, I'm surprised to hear you say what, Nelson, because I believe this is your favorite part of the show. Tell me again what He Is My Bag is about. Ah, He Is My Bag. <laughs> that, that song where I... I'm going grocery shopping, and <laughs> he holds my groceries. Aww, yeah. Because he exactly is that. her he's, bag. That's so yeah, nice. <laughs> so it's one. So exactly that. That's like you're you're absolutely right. And through this song, Harry and Muffy realize, oh, we're both the same kind of um, kind of weirdos. We're dedicated to our work. Muffy goes, "You could be my bag," and you're the person I saw flying <laughs> through the air. And finally, to end the song, Harry and Muffy sing a reprise of Somewhere in the Past. Mm-hmm. Sing about leaving their old lives as a weirdo inventor and a weirdo um, ancient theologian in the past. And they're going to stay together now, which they do in the garden where Muffy had her tent. Because the final number is in the garden. So they settle there together. In the tent. In the tent. In the garden. With the documents. With the documents. They've somehow come back. <laughs> Which have come back. They have dried. The sun came out. They dried. Wow. And that's, to the best of my understanding, that's um, that's Hurry Harry. Please tell yeah. me that's how it went. Is that your understanding, Jill? Okay. Like, so the best part about what you were saying is that it, like, kind of thematically is not incorrect. <laughs> In the I sense- need to know how- what parts of that were correct. I- how is okay. that possible? <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to read the synopsis, and I want you to not only think about how it relates to what you just said, but also how it might relate to another show that we're going to talk a little bit about in relation to this one, okay? Great. Okay, Okay, so keep this in your mind as I read through. Roger. This is a synopsis I found from a blog, actually. Because literally there is so little documentation of this. Yeah. There is a song called Hurry Up Harry that was skewing the Google searches anyways. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So this blog by a person named Samuel L. Leiter. So they wrote that it was, quote, uh, an intimate musical with a fable-like story mm-hmm. about one Harrison Fairchild IV, a wealthy young mm-hmm. man with an identity problem who roams all over the world in search of happiness. He tries various psychiatric and vocational solutions, which become the show's satirical targets, only to find what he was looking for Guess where? Right in his own backyard. <gasps> Y'all. The documents. In the garden. <laughs> in the garden. In the tent in the garden. So you weren't totally off in terms of like the overarching themes of the play. That's very generous of you to say, Joel. <laughs> well, I mean, there were moments where you were like, oh, and he just keeps searching for the thing and the thing. Like you were after it. You were getting it. Yes, absolutely. And then he did come home, did he not? In your version. He did. So good job. Absolutely. What are the? How do the Dead Sea Scrolls play into this? How does Africa play it, into this? Well, it says it's conquer- fable-like, and he goes on these sure. adventures to try to find who he is. Seems almost like Dr. Seussian, you know? Yeah, a little bit. Like, it's fantastical. Yeah. A little bit. But does it remind you of any other shows? And any other shows that might have been opening, oh, I don't know, a week after this one? Where someone's looking for their purpose? Mm-hmm. Well, that would be, in the early 1970s, that would be Pippin. 
that's the one. Yeah, absolutely. And Pippin's totally like a fable kind of thing. He tries this, he tries this. Uh-huh. I can't find my purpose. Although it doesn't end quite like that, but... I didn't even... I used Pippin as my reference for the um for the next show we're going to talk about, but it ties in here too. It really does. So Pippin at its core is sounds so much like this show to me. And Pippin opened or previews rather, began for Pippin on October 18th, 1972. So this closed on the 13th. So they were happening virtually at the exact same time. So I wonder if there was a bit of fear from that creative team being like, are we making the right choice doing this play about a lost soul? Like, I wonder if there was any fear from the Pippin folks about that. Probably not, because they were just focused on getting it up. But (laughs) from what I understand about the creation of it, Bob Fosse took it this um, silly show that Steven Schwartz had written and layered on all this dark stuff and kind of created the um, the leading player. Mm-hmm. And this, these are the things that make Pippin really interesting. Totally. So is it possible that Hurry Harry's maybe even what Pippin would have been without Bob Fosse's um, involvement? That's a pretty fair assessment of that, actually. Right? Yeah. Did you happen to read the New York Times review of Hurry Harry? Ooh, sure what did. What do you have Nelson? for us, what Nelson? Was it? So, (laughs) I was surprised, uh, of all the things I couldn't find, I was very surprised to read this, or to find this, Mm -hmm. and I have to say, they were not very kind. Yes, (laughs) I agree. I'm just going to read, like, a bit of the last paragraph, which goes, It is sad when this kind of thing happens, sad for the backers, sad for the people who worked on it, sad for the critics forced to pan it. (laughs) The critic, in such circumstances, is in no particular innocent. Halfway through, he is tempted in a paranoid fashion to wonder, what did I ever do to you guys to have to give me such a rotten night? (laughs) (laughs) That's that's like the meanest one we've heard probably. That's so funny. Yeah. I would encourage everyone to look up this show on IBDB just to get all the credits. Um, there, I, I must admit there were a lot of names I didn't recognize. Like more names that I didn't recognize than ones I did. Composed by Bill Whedon, who didn't really do um, much of anything before or after. So we can't even look into that to see mm-hmm. um, what it sounded like or what it might have sounded like. I have no idea what this show sounds like. Yeah. Although I will say, so Nelson, you said the last show had like 40 people in it. I think this one only had nine. So that's mm-hmm. nice. Playing like 40 characters, though. I can see that here, yeah. This story must be so convoluted if people are changing their hats every 20 seconds. Yeah, that's a great point. Oh no, you guys. I'm on the IBDB right now, and it's um, Samuel D. Ratcliffe played um, the lead part, Harrison Fairchild. Mm -hmm. And there's a note that he replaced Bill Hinnant in previews. Which... Okay, so timeline. <gasps> Their lead actor who the show's named after, yeah. Nine previews, two performances. Where in there did they find time to have this person learn it? Go in as Harry in, in um, Hurry Harry. I can't. That's amazing. Oh, That's amazing. Great. So Hurry Harry lost to the sands of time until now. Nelson, what was doing well? Because I know that um, Pippin took um, Best Musical in its year. Oh, wouldn't you like to know? Did it not take Best Musical in its year? No, it was not. What? I know. Everything I know is a lie. Everything you know is a lie. I remember that now because when the revival took Best Revival, they were like, finally Pippin gets what it deserves. Sorry, continue. (laughs) Yep. Okay, so this was the 27th Annual Tony Awards, Mm -hmm. and they were held on March 25th, 1973 at the Imperial Theatre. 
Uh, the hosts that year were Rex Harrison, Celeste Holm, Sandy Duncan, and Jerry Orbach. Oh, wow. nice. Oh, uh, yeah. I was like, spread the love around it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So what I will say about this is I'm going to I'm gonna make you guys guess again. Okay. Absolutely. Good. So I'm going to say the best musical won all three categories, best musical, best book, and best original score. Ooh. 1972. One composer or two? One composer. Composer, lyricist. A composer who before or after was already famous? Like, is this their big show or did they have other big shows as well? They had other big shows as well. Most of them came after. 1972, best musical. Most of them came after. Is it a lot of night music? <gasps> it is a lot of yeah! night music. Yes! Oh, yeah. It's a little night music, but it, there's a lot of music <laughs> but in there's it. there's a lot of music. Like, it was that close to company. Like, what, three, four years from company? Like, what? Because this is right when Sondheim starts to hit. Yeah. I was like, it's either night music or Sweeney, but Sweeney's a bit later. Sweeney's later, yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Oh. oh, amazing. Really cool. And so what's, what else? So Pippin is nom though. Is nominated. Pippin is nommed. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Pippin was nommed. Uh, Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope, which oh, is a, a yes, review. Yes, yes, yes. That's nice that they wrote a song about me. Yeah. <laughs> the whole show. show. Yeah. <laughs> they wrote a whole show. <laughs> the one thing I did find really interesting about that is uh, yeah. it was by Mickey Grant, who is like a female composer lyricist. Like she did all of in it. In the 1970s. Good yeah. for her. Who we're going to talk about in our next show. We are. Hell yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, and then the other musical was Sugar. Right. Which is by uh, Jewel Stein and Bob Merrill. And Bob Merrill, who we just talked about. Who yeah. we just talked about, I know. Wow, look at all these crossovers. Is Ben Vereen best actor, though? He is best actor yeah. for Prayer, yeah. For Pippin. Yeah, yeah. that makes good sense. Yeah. I mean, like, Night Music won for best lead actress. That makes sense. It was kind of a, uh, a tie-up between Pippin and Night Music. They were taking mm-hmm. most things. Yeah. I Two mean, very different shows as well. That's so interesting. Incredibly different. There's no denying as well. Like, Pippin's a nice show, and Stephen Schwartz is a really nice composer. We're mm-hmm. going to talk a lot about Stephen Schwartz in a second. Mm-hmm. But freaking night music has sin in the clowns. You know what I mean? Like, yes. Stephen Sondheim wrote the best song of the last 100 years. A Weekend in, in the show. Country. So that's a, I mean. Oh, I a Weekend in the tune. Country. Yeah. Wow. Well, I guess we should say goodnight to Hurry Harry. Should we get on to the last, the final? I think so. Y'all, what's our what's the last musical we're talking in this Revive or Die? Nelson, tell us. We are talking about the musical Working. Yes, work. Because she do work, y'all. She <laughs> do work. <laughs> All right, y'all. Let's talk about working. Working. Working work. nine to five. Yes. <laughs> it, could you imagine? Okay. <laughs> Previews began at the 46th Street Theater. It's probably called something else now. It is. I think it's the Richard Rogers now. Ah, oh, yes, that makes, that makes sense. sense. Yeah. Yeah, uh, on May fifth, nineteen seventy-eight, it opened on May fourteenth, nineteen seventy-eight, and it closed on June fourth, nineteen seventy-eight. Uh, after twelve previews and twenty-four performances, she had more. I think it's our longest-running reviver die, if I'm not mistaken. It seems like it. Which is wild to think, because that's like three weeks. It's a regional run, y'all. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> So, so, oh, where do we even begin? This is Stephen Schwartz's baby, it seems like, right? Yes. Like, hands down, it is, his name is, like, plastered all over this thing. Mm-hmm. I also want to quickly note, like, the amount of creatives that did work on the show is quite substantial. Yes, it's unreal. So, full disclosure, I know what this show is about, or I know the concept of this show, but I think it's going to work, because what I know, I know one song from this show 
And I know it's a collection of songs by various composers about various blue-collar jobs. Yes. Yeah, pretty much. And that's all I know. So once we're once we're ready for it, my version of this is going to be speculating about what a few of those songs might be. Great. And what a few of those jobs might be. Yeah, I love that, actually. Until then, though, what's some of the history on the development of this? Do we have any idea? Okay, I know that it's based on a book. By Studs yeah. Terkel. Oh, sure. Yeah, I know that it was adapted by Stephen Schwartz. Yep. Daphne's absolutely. laughing at the name Studs. <laughs> and Terkel. That's not a name. <laughs> That's a fake thing that you give when someone asks your name. I was just... <laughs> it's like, oh, yes, I need to order 100 washing machines, please. And then you say your name is... Yep. Studs, Turkle. But it's not one that you've come up with in advance. It's one that you're caught by surprise. You didn't you're realize looking you were at things around the room. Yeah, you're in like a pet store and you're like, okay, I see some studs in the wall. There's a yeah, turtle studs. over there. I can't There's say turtle. That's turtle. Turtle. No, imagine like going into Starbucks and they're like, okay, can I get a name for the cup? It's Studs. Yeah. <laughs> no. With an S or a Z. Got a coffee here for Stubs? Stubs? <laughs> <laughs> they always get it wrong. <laughs> oh, poor Studs. Poor Studs. So that's kind of what I know about it. And then, uh, like, in terms of where where it came from. But I, I think Nelson's right. Like, Stephen Schwartz's name is all over this thing in so many different yep. ways that you go, he obviously read this book and thought, oh, well, we, we got to make it a musical. Like, it just kind of seems like that was the trajectory of this. And not only that, it kind of seems like, based on the timing at least, this is kind of Stephen Schwartz's blank check project to throw back to a podcast that I love about movies where directors get a blank check after having an enormous success. So Stephen Schwartz, um, at this point, has done Godspell and has done Pippin. Mm-hmm. Um, just, so left and right, he's kind of the new hot thing in a few ways. Yeah. This is what he uses that cachet to do. Yeah, that's a great point. And also, I'm wondering, too, like, this is how many years after Pippin? Six? And when Six, was Godspell? Yeah. Godspell's before, I believe. Godspell, 1971. Yep, and right. the Godspell movie's 1973. So that's what, he, that's what he's been doing. Yeah. He's been between... Pippin and like getting Godspell between the off-Broadway production and the movie off the ground. He's been busy. And then there was the Toronto production. So you're getting your royalties exactly. from that. And you're licensing yeah. these shows out. And so they're getting traction in a way that maybe some yeah. other shows weren't. Especially because this show does not do very well. I mean, the other thing is because his name is plastered all over this thing, I was like, okay, so it's his baby. But for it to be his baby, but then also have all these other composers and lyricists working on it also kind of confused me. Because mm-hmm. I was like, if this is a musical, uh, but you have so many other voices of other artists being voiced in it. Yes. I'm yeah. like, what What kind of musical are you shaping? Are you actually even shaping a musical? Or is this... Right. Um, I read through a bit of the libretto mm-hmm. and I listened to some of the songs and it just sounds like a review. Yeah, right. it absolutely does. And I think I think you're, exa- you're onto something there, Nelson. It's a very bizarre choice for an artist who has made a name for themselves in two shows as a composer and a composer with a pretty distinct, cool voice to have the follow-up project be, I'm not going to use that voice very much. is right. really interesting. Or I'm going to use it in a different way because exactly. Stephen Schwartz directs this. Yes. Yes, he directs it. We're all like making faces. But apparently, okay, no, we'll talk about that later. But I'm going to just quickly list the folks who contributed to the music. Because yes. there's some people in here that we're going to want to talk about. Oh, yeah. Original songs with music by Craig Carnelia, Mickey Grant, Mary Rogers, Stephen yeah. Schwartz, James Taylor, and Michelle Broerman. 
Like... That's a lot of people. And a lot of people who have done some stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, where do we start? Craig Carnelia is kind of cool. Is it, like, too many cooks, though, like Nelson's saying? Like, we're already just like, whoa. Let me let me share what I found out about this based mm-hmm. on my research. Based on the look of this show, there's um, a lot of um, a lot of Broadway actors in denim and sneakers. Ooh, denim and sneakers. We're working class. You know right. what I mean? Like we're we go to work every day, earn an honest living. Yeah. Um, but very much in that super like showy 1970s Broadway kind of way. You know what I mean? Like this is the kind of thing. It seemed like at least this is the kind of thing that a lot of people make fun of when they make fun of musicals. You know what I mean? Oh yes. Okay. So that's what the show looked like. And the only song that I know from this show is by Craig Carnelia. It's, it's called The Mason, because uh, I've played it for a bunch of people at cabarets. Um, and it's nice. It's kind of a nice little That's song. That's the one song I know from it, because again, musical theater school. So I looked into the books that this is based off of. Yes. And one thing I read was the fact that a lot of the, um, at least the book of this musical, and even the text from the uh, music is replicas of these interviews. Mm that were done by these people, which is very Chorus Line-esque because Chorus yeah. Line was a bunch totally. of interviews. Bordering on verbatim theater almost or ad- adapted mm. from some verbatim interviews. Exactly. Uh, and so I think like, oh, if there was so much success found in Chorus Line, why wasn't there a success in this? And I think maybe it was the unification of one topic. I mean, this yeah. is about all working class people. But it's working class people at a variety right. of levels. Like, who who do you identify with? And I identified them with this one song, but I had to hear, you know, yes. 20 other songs of not identifying with anyone, mm-hmm. you know? Everyone in Chorus Line is fighting for the same thing, which you, as an audience member, get so invested in. Yeah. And, and I just don't know if audience members could invest in... All of this. That's a great point. That's such a great take. I hadn't even thought of that, but it totally, it's gotta be. It's gotta be, because at this point, Chorus Line is a juggernaut. It's the, it's whole, it holds the longest run title by far. It's, um, it's kind of goofy when you look back at it now. Um, shows break the Chorus Line record all the time, but at the time, mm-hmm. Chorus Line held this record fast. So there was, maybe is a bit of it that is like, okay, what is it that makes Chorus Line so successful and how can we take that? And they took the wrong things. Yeah. You can't just interview people and be like, yeah. oh, that you're you're interesting. I'm going to put that on stage. People like the chorus lines about jobs. So we'll yeah. do jobs. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do this about jobs. Yeah. <laughs> Is wow. it ever about jobs? So let me tell you a few of the jobs that they're about. Nelson, you'll remind me as well if I forget any jobs that it's about. Because there's one about a mason um, mm-hmm. that yep. we talked about. Um, if I recall correctly, there's one about a... Um, a dog catcher. Oh. The okay. dog catcher sings about, oh, I love catching dogs because I love dogs. I keep them for myself in my house. I've got a house with 25 dogs. Oh, <laughs> it's a spoken word rap. It's, it's, an, early, it's an early rap. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Way before it's time. What else? There's a, there's a song about a bartender um, who sings... I love making drinks. Mm. Drinks are so great. <laughs> I love chatting with people and cleaning glasses and sweeping the floor and mopping the floor. Um, so it's all about how they love their jobs and not at all about anything else? Those yeah. two songs are. <laughs> but then there's also a song um, by a, um, an executive assistant mm-hmm. to, a, um, to a rich person. And the executive assistant is like, I'm not so sure about this. Right. This job is kind of okay, but this person doesn't treat me great. So I'm thinking of looking for a new position, but I'm having trouble getting my resume together. 
but can you a recommend dog someone who does resume services? A dog catching job would be better. <laughs> Nelson, what? I'm, 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 I'm blanking a little bit. Can you remember what other jobs they talk about in working? Um, housewife. Mm-hmm, they, mm-hmm. they do talk uh, about housewife. Yep. Newspaper boy. They talk about new, the newspaper boy song is great. It's a throw, throw. <laughs> I throw the newspaper. I throw. <laughs> throw and he actually <laughs> threw newspapers out into the audience oh, um, people like, hated it they would get hit in the face this is pre-newsies yeah. too <laughs> this so is pre-newsies when they opted is... for just single sheets of paper in newsies this was the reason they yeah. were like well remember working we hit people in the face with newspapers and they didn't like it he actually had a cannon and he struck the newspapers <laughs> was a t-shirt cannon <laughs> Throw, boom, throw, boom. I throw newspapers. Because as we all know, when you buy a ticket in the balcony, you're expecting the same show that those in the orchestra level are getting. So you two deserve a newspaper newspaper. launched for you. I think there's a song uh, about a guy who parks cars. Yeah. Like a valet. Um, The valet guy. Oh, that's a great song. I remember that song. Now, vroom, vroom, vroom. Vroom, vroom, vroom. (laughs) Pass me your keys. A room, room, room. Oh my god. <gasps> oh, we're getting um, wacky. There's, yeah. um, <laughs> so that's <laughs> so that's, that's my understanding that's of working as a as a show. Jill, yeah. what's working about? Okay. You're not far off in the sense that you're correct. It's about working class folks and then they yep. sing songs about their jobs and experiences. Yep. So the synopsis that I found on stage agent, which means that you can license this. Working is about the hopes, dreams, joys, and concerns of the average working American. In the course of one 24-hour workday, the audience meets and hears stories of, of various workers, including the school teacher, the parking lot attendant, the waitress, the mill worker, the mason, the trucker, the fireman, and the housewife. I love a good song cycle, um, a lot more than I think a lot of people do. Would y'all ever pay to go see a song cycle in a big old Broadway theater? Um, no. Like, I'd like right? it as an off-Broadway. Or a nice cabaret setting or, or something, cabaret you know? cabaret setting, Right? Yeah. I mean, I would go if it was a big name, but then it's a star vehicle for someone, you know? Right. Which may not actually work for this format. No. 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 Yeah, like a big old Songs for a New World where it's like, you've got a couple of stars who are all going to sing like three or four songs each over the course of the evening. Yeah. I feel like this was just kind of destined to not work, dare I say? I feel the exact same way. Once again, it's like they looked at Chorus Line and took the wrong things. Because Chorus Line (laughs) is Song Cycle E. It's got some Song Cycle elements, Mm -hmm. but it uses such a fantastic framing device and narrative device to tie it all together that it makes it really interesting and it's also about dancers, so you have an easy way into these enormous dance numbers. Yes. I tried to read the libretto of this, and they say that, you know, this is a musical. But the way yes. they tie the songs together is after, like, one song finishes, the person who's going to be doing, like, maybe the next story or the next song will use an element of whoever's the last person who sang in their story. That does not make a unified story. You know what I mean? Like, Right. No. Yes. Yeah, it sure yeah. doesn't. Okay, so they tried to make them connect. Yes. But you actually can just have people in isolation. Like, they don't have to relate. Yeah, they can just be people. I would have liked this more if it was just a song cycle. I think I would have. Sure, sure. So, um, this cast. Susan Bigelow, Patti LuPone. Really? Just coming up. This is just before Avita. That's it, okay. This is just before she really hits. Yep. David Patrick Kelly is there. This cast obviously is 
a collection of really gifted performers. Absolutely. Like, clearly there's something else at play that has nothing to do with their handling of the material. I quickly just want to circle back because... Yes. uh, I'm just going to circle back here. Circle back. I know we talked about the composers already. Have you talked? Can we talk about the composers? Is this the yes. thing? Let's talk a lot more okay. about the composers. So we have Craig Carnelia. We have Mickey Grant, who female composer. She's writing full musicals by herself in the 1970s, like power to her. Mary Rogers. Yep. 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 Who is the daughter of Richard Rogers? Or I think you're right. Who is the mother of Adam Gettle? And then we have Susan Birkenhead, Stephen Schwartz, and then James Taylor. This mosh posh of. <laughs> <laughs> They, I use that correctly. That is, this is a mosh posh. Like this uh, is hodgepodge. Hodgepodge. I believe it's. I believe it's. Di- it's different in the UK. I think you're good. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> this mosh posh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just. I, I. I just don't understand what was going through Stephen Schwartz's head when he was like, "Yes, I'm going to make a musical about this, and I'm going to use all these people who are great uh, composers, and I'm going to put a through line. It's that doesn't even work." Yeah. The other thing I just remembered through reading about Stephen Schwartz is not only is Pippin and Godspell a thing, this is just at the end of a big long four-year run for his show, The Magic Show, which isn't super remembered anymore. Oh. But it's also like, Stephen Schwartz is on top of the world at this mm-hmm. point. And like, is doing whatever he wants? Is that what you're getting at? <laughs> I think so. Like, it's a power play. It's a... Yeah. And I think a, a nice one in like, bring let's bring together all these composers, including James Taylor's like the James Taylor, right? Yeah. I mean, I thought it's that so. James Taylor. I thought it was that James Taylor. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I'm like, especially for yeah. a guy who has found so much success or maybe, maybe he was just trying something new and he was like, this is the time I got money. Let's try something new. Cause if I, if I flop, I'm still going to write wicked and be very successful. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> but it's also, this is kind of the end of, um, Steven Schwartz as a superstar until Wicked in the early 2000s. Well, that depends how you look at it. But in terms of Broadway, okay. yes, you're right. Um, he's still composing beautiful music. He is. Absolutely, he is. For Disney and... Yeah, he was doing more TV film. He writes The Baker's Wife, which is a very long, very boring show with a couple of incredible songs. I agree, yes. Just before Wicked does the music for um, The Prince of Egypt, mm-hmm. which is very nice. He takes a turn as one of the lyricist com- collaborators for Alan Menken, trying to um, replace Howard Ashman mm-hmm. after uh, Howard Ashman passes away. So he does the lyrics for Pocahontas and the lyrics for Hunchback, I believe. And he writes Children of Eden, which is a beautiful fucking total show. Yes. Um, that it was a total bop. But that's just before Wicked as well, because Children of Eden is set to grow to Broadway, and then 9-11 happens and stops it. Wow. Like, that's the story of Children of Eden. So he's... It's never really clicked, though. You know what I mean? Both Pocahontas and um, Hunchback are really not hits at all. They're both do very weird. So he's out of the Disney family. Like, I think Prince of Egypt overperforms and um, is very nice, but it's certainly not an enormous hit. Mm-hmm. It's just such an interesting career that he starts out as, like, hot shit all throughout the 70s. And then really after this, can't quite get a foothold until all of a sudden writes a musical that's the biggest thing he's ever done, like mm-hmm. late in his career. Right. By, that is by far the biggest thing he's ever done. Yeah, wow. It's really fascinating to look at Stephen Schwartz's career um, in this way because it's not often that we get to talk about him. We haven't yet, actually. Either it seems like his shows either don't even make it to Broadway, like Baker's Wife or Children of Eden, mm-hmm. or 
do very well. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. But yeah, just so many people involved in this musical. After talking about this show, I'm, I think it's the one I'm most intrigued about of all of these yeah. three in the sense Absolutely. that I can see it maybe working in some <laughs> oh. way uh, with maybe just a new fresh take on it. Yeah, that's a, an excellent call. I can't imagine a song about a housewife written in the 1970s being right down the middle at this point in yeah. time. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay, that's fair. But I'd be, I'd be interested to look and see and find out. Do you know the, the 2017 London Revival? You can listen to that recording mm. and it's nice. Okay, I'm going to do that. Is it nice? It's nice. Okay, I'll have to uh, check They it out. update yeah. the soundscape to like match what is available mm-hmm. sounds that we have now. Yeah. It seems like Stephen Schwartz's music lends itself so well to that because the Godspell revival is so nice. The Pippin revival mm-hmm. is so nice. Like it, it moves into the contemporary sound very easily. Yeah. yeah. That's really cool. That makes it so timeless. So what was successful this year, Nelson? Yes, Tony Awards, the 32nd annual Tony Awards on 1978. So, believe it or not, uh, Working got six Tony noms. Wow. Six. Unfortunately, work, work girl. Did I do it? Did I do it? Yeah. (laughs) You were so close. (laughs) (laughs) close. (laughs) My Um, my straight ass doing my best to hang. (laughs) I know. I swear, I'm going to listen back to this and be like, man, I sound so fucking gay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Nelson, I got news for you, bud. (laughs) Who's that? Who's that flaming homosexual who just sounds so flaming? (laughs) Okay, so. Back to back to homosexual Nelson <laughs> talking about Tony's, musical Tony's. So, unfortunately, they did not get a nominated nominative nomination for best musical, but they did get the six uh, for one for best book, one for best original score, and then uh, two for best performance by a uh, featured actor, uh, best lighting design, and best scenic design. Okay. So did it, uh, did it win any? It won none. That's not the worst thing in the world. It's, it's too bad that that didn't give them a boost. 1978. Was this Sweeney? Is it, so it's not, it's not a Sondheim in Best Musical? No, it is Nicht. One composer or two? I actually didn't know who wrote this musical until I looked <laughs> okay. at it. I was like, I don't know who you are. <laughs> but this is, this, is good, this, is good informa- this is good information as well, because if okay. we all have a very similar level of knowledge and... Um... Uh, one composer... But there was um, there was multiple lyricists for this uh, show. I'll give you a hint. The book was by Murray Horwitz, who I don't know, but the book was also by Richard Maltby uh, Jr. of the Maltby and Shire. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But it's the late nineteen seventies. Okay, I'll give you another hint. Great, it's great. it's jazzy. She do she do swing. Jazzy swinging late nineteen seventies. Jill, do you have any idea? I'm nineteen seventy eight. One composer, multiple book writers. Including freaking Richard Maltby Jr., like a young Richard Maltby Jr., before yeah. Closer Than Ever. Okay, I'll give you the composer, but I don't think it'll yeah, help please you, do. actually. Uh, Fats Waller. Oh! Oh, Amy okay. Slavin. A- oh yeah. my god, you guys got that so fast. So the other uh, shows that were up for Best Musical were Dancin', which I had not heard of, and it's by no. uh, a various composers and lyricists. So d- maybe that took the slot that was for Workin', was Dancin'. Yeah, yeah, dancing. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's like, we <laughs> just can't nominate another one-word musical. Like, we just can't. Where it's a, where it's a verb. We can't nominate yeah. another verb musical. <laughs> we, we can, can only do have one. misbehaving, because that's, you're not doing it. Yeah, you're, you're not. You're not misbehaving. Yeah. 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 
Um, another one was <laughs> On the 20th Century. Yes, by, I'm uh, yeah, sure. Cy yeah, Coleman and Comden and Green. Cy Coleman, Cy Coleman. Yeah, yeah. I like that show. by far one of my favorite musical theater composers. Yeah, me, uh, me, me as well, I would say. And then the last musical that was up for Best Musical was a musical called Runaways by Elizabeth Swatos. Um, yeah, so uh, Tony Awards, I mean, they uh, didn't win any, sadly. No. But they did, at least they got the nom for uh, Best Book, while Stephen mm-hmm. Schwartz did. And then all those composers also got, like, yeah. Best Original Score. Okay. But, I mean, how do you... I, the other thing that I, I think about with this show is, because there are so many actors that just sing their one solo and that's it, it's how do you pick who did the best job? Is that the reason that all the noms for um, actors and actresses got were in the supporting category? I mean, they are all featured. They all had a feature. Yeah, exactly. But they exactly. weren't yeah. lead. That's so. right. It's featured. It's featured, not supporting in the Tonys. I would like to go through our three musicals and evaluate all three of us whether we should revive or let these die. So, first of all, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Does this deserve a revive, or is it time to let this die? Um, only if it's by a woman named Tiffany at a dive bar. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm inclined to agree, Nelson. I can't I can't see a way where this is without an actual like total rewrite where this really works. Yeah. I feel like so much of the show would have to be rewritten in order to make it work for one, exactly. a 21st century audience, and two, for like me to even care. What about you, Jill? I don't think this should have ever happened. Period. Yeah, like I don't absolutely. think it should have even yep. made it this far. Mainly because the movie is its own thing. Like, the movie is very much its own thing, and it's like it should not be on stage. Yeah, very fair. Because the thing you can do really successfully on film is silence. And a thing yes. that works beautifully on stage is silence, but people don't take advantage of it enough. And I I am sure they didn't take advantage of it with 40 songs or however many songs <laughs> there were. So, yeah, I'm just, yeah, I just don't think we need it. Let it die. What about Hurry Harry? Do we revive Hurry Harry or do we let it die? Va? Okay, I'll go first. Yeah, so, go first. Sadly, I think she also needs to die. Yeah. She's gotta die. She's gotta go. Get her Bye, out of Harry. there. Hurry Harry. Hurry Harry. <laughs> uh, hurry Harry and get out. Like, yeah. uh, <laughs> I think there's just, there's better shows that do what that musical was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I just think it's not worth the investment of trying to make it work. I agree completely. And finally... Steven Schwartz's working. Revive, let it die. V. Okay, so this is where I'm actually most conflicted because I would like to revive it, but my issue is because it's so built around the text that it's based off of that how much can you actually change of the original text to try and make it work for a 21st century audience while still being original to that text? Yeah. You can make a show sound 21st century. You can do all these things to try and make it, but the text is still from when it was. Nelson, I agree. I agree completely. I think there's the potential for a strong revival here. I'd want to examine it a lot and really figure out what the take is on it before considering a revival. But of the three, this is the one where I actually would be interested in considering a revival for sure. Mm-hmm. How about you, Jill? Uh, okay, so... Guess what, folks? There has been a revised libretto on this. 
There's a revised libretto. Oh. It might be really nice. We should try to read it because I wonder if maybe some of our feelings about it could go away. Yeah. I'm certainly putting a lot of judgment on it because of its place in the, what I know about the 1970s. And like, I'm making a lot of assumptions and that might not be fair to working. Yeah. I, I should mean, take a, we'll I should take a good hard look at it. But I'm intrigued by it and I'm not ready to make my decision yet. Very good. So we'll update in a future episode <laughs> whether Jill would like to revive or let dive. Yeah. Y'all, I think we did it. Woohoo! Pew, 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 pew. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Nelson Betancourt is just one of the very, very best. It's wonderful to hang out with you again, dude. Can't wait till the next time you find yourself down here or we find ourselves over there. I miss you guys. Miss you a lot, oh, bud. We miss I miss you. you folks. I'm trying to use more gender neutral. Thank you. Yes. I miss Excellent you folks. Choice. Be sure to join us next time when I believe we're going to tackle Wonderland with <gasps> dear friend of the podcast and very significant person in all of our lives, Ali Fulmick. Yay. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe. Check out Nelson Betancourt on social media channels because he's just the best. Send us a comment or an email or something. And until then, stay working. <laughs> no. I don't know. And don't forget to eat your breakfast at Tiffany's. And hurry, Harry. That one just didn't fit. That That's didn't. Okay. That didn't work. Thank you very much, everyone. Goodbye. Hi, everyone. This is producer Daphne speaking. Thank you all so much for listening to Monkeys and Playbills, the show where we take a look at Broadway musicals that had 100 performances or fewer before closing. To learn more about the show, you can follow us on Instagram at monkeysandplaybillspod, on Twitter at monkeyplaybills, or email us at monkeysandplaybillspod at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash monkeysandplaybills. Monkeys and Playbills is proud to be a Village Conservatory for Music Theatre podcast. Original music for the show is provided by Paul DeGers, and the show is produced and edited by Daphne Finlayson. Thank you all so much for listening, and join us next week where we take on Wonderland.